Hello everyone, welcome back to The Killer Kind, or welcome if you're new. But if you're new, then you should probably stop this episode and go back and listen to last week's episode because this will be part two of the Tamala Horsford case. And you really can't afford to miss that episode. And with that said, I think we should just jump right into it. But I'll do a short recap. So, Tamala Horsford is a 40-year-old mother of five who attends an adult slumber party. The controversy surrounding this case is that she's a black female at a party with only white females. And Tamala is found dead the following morning. It was quickly ruled an accidental death, but the reality is that this case was not taken seriously, despite some of the red flags by people who attended the party. Last week, we covered the timeline of the night and the state of Tamala's body the following morning, and now we're going to get into everything that happened after that fateful morning and where the case stands now. So without further ado, let's dive in. So last week we talked about what all we know from the night before Tamala's body was found. And I'll recap a little bit further so we don't forget some of the details. Um, a group of women celebrating a birthday party for and at the home of a woman named Jean. They were watching an LSU football game and just hanging out and partying together. Jean's boyfriend, Jose, was also there as well as one of the other ladies' husbands, Tom or Thomas. Everyone was drinking. Tamala was apparently the only one smoking cigarettes and apparently smoked weed as well. Now, Tamla spoke to both her husband and stepdaughter at different points in the night, and both of them reported that she appeared to be having a good time. And her stepdaughter mentioned that she even appeared to be the life of the party, which everyone else can corroborate too. So all seemed to be going great. When Tamla's body was found that next morning, Shortly before 9 a.m., 911 was called by Jean's boyfriend, Jose, who, as I mentioned, used to work for the Forsyth County Sheriff's Department. Really don't want you to forget that. (laughs) When he called 911, he explained that Jean's aunt, Madeline, was the one who discovered Tamala. She ran upstairs to tell Jean and Jose. Officers were brought to the scene, and the body was examined. And that's kind of where we left off um, last week. So um, this week, I want to start out with the interviews. Um, We'll get more into details as far as the security cameras. There's a lot more to that. Um, And then a few of the other rumors and just speculations around physical evidence. But let's start with the interview, shall we? So Sarah and Nicole were two of the females that left the party First, And we'll kind of go in order of who left first when it comes to the interview. So Sarah and Nicole had pretty short interviews since they both left at around 10.30 p.m. All they had to say was that everyone was happy and having a good time. Everybody was getting along and they both even said that Tam didn't seem drunk at all. Okay. Keep that in mind. Keep their statement like that in mind. Bridget was the next person to leave the party at 1.47 a.m., which was just a few minutes prior to Tamala supposedly going outside to smoke a cigarette. And this interview is a bit of a roller coaster ride, to say the least. She was all over the place, 
pretty upset about the whole situation, and she seemed to deflect a lot of the questions asked by investigators. It's just apparent that she was pretty nervous, which, again, I've said this before in a previous episode. I can't blame anyone for being nervous during a police interview because I know I would be, regardless if I had anything or not. I get scared when I get pulled over by a cop for speeding. I couldn't imagine if I just had a friend die and I'm being questioned by police. I mean, I think we'd all be pretty, you know, pretty much freaking out and pretty emotional myself. But Bridget said that Tam was very happy that night just like the other woman. She kind of picked on Bridget throughout the night, not in a mean way, but Bridget was on her laptop during the night because she was working while at the party. She was just kind of keeping to herself and she didn't drink that much. She was more of like a mom of the group, even though they're all moms, but she called herself like the mother hen. So Tamla was giving her a hard time, but like I said, in a joking way. Now, Bridget gave the same story that the others had given that night, that everyone was up until around 1.30 a.m. when they all started to disperse and go to bed. She said that it was just her and Tamela up until about 1.47 when Bridget's husband came to pick her up. She said the two of them were hanging out in the kitchen. Tam was eating a bowl of gumbo that had been made earlier the night. And the two were just talking and keeping each other company until Bridget left. She said that when her husband arrived, Tam walked her to the front door and gave her a big old hug and told her that she had a great time with her tonight to stay safe and, you know, look forward to seeing you again soon. You know, something along those lines. But one very important thing to note during Bridget's interview was that she told police that Tamla didn't seem drunk at all while they were in the kitchen. She seemed to have her wits about her. She was standing up normally, walking normally. She wasn't slurring her words. Now, I say that's important because the two other girls that were were interviewed, they left at 1030. So that's still fairly early in the night. So Tam could have easily, you know, got rip-roaring drunk (laughs) between 1030 and 130. So I say that said that's pretty important that she's still not acting extremely drunk. So once again, for like the millionth time, police are being told that Tamla did not seem drunk at no point. During the night, did she seem a little drunk slob kebab, okay? (laughs) Tamla was fine. Although, Jean and Jose, when they found her, kind of made it seem like that's what happened, that she was just sloppy and she fell over the balcony. Yet, when being interviewed, and when everyone's interviewed, or even talked to initially before their actual official interviews, everyone said, no, she didn't seem like crazy sloppy. Like, she was fine. So just point that out. So then there was one very interesting statement made by Bridget. She says, quote, and then at, I guess, like 145-ish, the back door opened, closed, and the back door opened again, but then it was never fully closed. The investigator was like, wait, what? (laughs) You're telling me that you heard this from someone else, right? Because you had already left. And she said, oh, yes, yes. And she said, quote, but I mean, several of them collaborated the fact that when they came upstairs, the patio door was a little cracked. I'm sorry. (laughs) They collaborated? Like, what? So that right there bothers me. In a normal investigation, witnesses are not supposed to be talking (laughs) and sharing stories. But this was proving to not be a normal investigation. This was just not taken seriously enough for me and for many people. 
But investigators do question her and ask her more about what else she's heard. You know, who has given you information like this? And she kind of trails off and doesn't really answer that question. But she does mention that Jose made a comment that when he went out on the balcony, and it's not clear when he would have done this, like what time of the night or morning or whatever. But apparently he found the unlit cigarette and lighter and picked them both up and put them on the fireplace and then proceeded to the edge. And that is where he saw a gas propane tank sitting there. Now, he made it seem like Tam could have used this as a footstool to get up on the railing. How? Propane tanks are not something that's stable for you to stand on. There's really nowhere for you to put your foot. Not comfortably, anyways. I mean, sure, it's possible, I guess, but like once again... Jose should not be planting ideas in the heads of these people and giving his own theory as to what could have happened, especially not to all the people that were at the party, because they then could start believing these theories and try to make them facts instead of relaying what somebody else told them. It's just wildly inappropriate, and you're going to hear me say that more than once (laughs) in this episode, but anyways... What's funny is that in Bridget's interview, she goes on and on about how the majority of the women were driving her crazy. She said that she did not drink that much, but apparently everybody else was just sloppy. She said Jen, specifically, um, was one of the few girls that was very, very drunk, like way too drunk. She said specifically, Jen pushed her over the edge, and she's the one that made her want to leave. Bridget said that's why she liked Tamla so much, because she knew she had a lot to drink, but she could still hold her own. She wasn't falling all over everybody. She was just having a good time, but was still coherent enough to have a normal conversation. Now, before we move on from Bridget's interview, there's one thing that I didn't really see anybody mention um, anywhere else that I've read, but that stood out to me when I was reading the police interview on justicefortam.org. Now, again, I don't know who put this website together so take that for what it's worth but these do appear to be actual um interview documents that are just uploaded to this website um it does appear to be the accurate interview so it's irrelevant where it came from really because it's still a police document but Bridget did seem a little scatterbrained during the interview so again take that for with a grain of salt She was a little all over the place and nervous, as I mentioned, but at one point, she says, quote, she walked me to the door, gave me kisses, so my DNA will be all over them jammies. (laughs) End quote. (laughs) I don't want to make something out of this that it's not, but if this was in any other case, and I didn't know anything about Bridget... I would say that's a pretty big red flag. Like, if this is a murder investigation, which it's technically not, I would be sounding the alarm after that statement. Why even say that your DNA will be all over her? Why? When she said this, she had already told police that Tam gave her a hug and had given her a kiss on the cheek when she was telling her goodbye for the night. So why are you circling back around to say that? Hey, don't forget she gave me a kiss before I left. So if you find my DNA on her, that's why. Like That's what she said, even though that doesn't really make sense. But that's what she's saying here. You know, if if you're looking for DNA, mine's going to be on her. Hers is going to be on me. Like, what? I don't want to think Bridget had anything to do with Tamala's death. And I 
and I don't think that really, but I didn't like that statement at all. And if this was a murder case, I would say that Bridget did it. <laughs> but again, I don't want to think that here. And I really don't. I, and I don't think that. <laughs> and that's what I'm telling myself. I don't think that. I just had to mention it to you guys to see what you thought about it. Now, again, this is probably her first time being interviewed by police. So maybe she's just, you know, word vomiting here and and saying some things that she shouldn't say or that just doesn't make sense. So I'm just going to leave that there. <laughs> Marcy was the next to be interviewed. She was the one that left around 4 a.m. And she pretty much, again, said the same thing that everyone else said. Um, that everyone was having a good night that night. She said that a lot of these women were meeting for the first time, too. They didn't really know all know each other. That was one thing I wasn't clear on. Everyone mutually knew Jean, but they didn't really know each other very well. She said Tam was very nice and seemed happy the entire night. And she said that Tamala did not seem drunk at all. She said maybe a little tipsy, but that's to be expected. She said really the one everyone was worried about was Jen, just like Bridget mentioned in her interview. Jen was the super drunk, sloppy chick at the party, not Tam. Marcy said that sometime between 1230 and 1245, Jose set her and Jen up in the only bedroom downstairs on the main level. She said he turned on the TV for them and they pretty much passed out for the night. They were apparently some of the first ones to go to sleep for the night as well. I do believe that Jean's aunt Madeline went to bed shortly before these two, but again, they were one of the first few to go to sleep. Marcy said that she got up around 4 a.m. the next morning because she actually had to work the next day. It was like her second day at a new job, so she wanted to have plenty of time to get herself together and just have plenty of time to get ready for work. Marcy said that when she left, she didn't notice anything odd. She felt okay to drive home, and that's what she did. She said that around 9 a.m., she got a text from Jen letting her know what had happened and that she needed to come back to the house. But when she got there, she was told to stay outside. Like I mentioned in last week's episode, those who had left had to stay separate from those that were still in the house. Paula was the next person to be interviewed, and she corroborated everyone else's stories. That everyone had a good time, Tam seemed happy, and did not appear drunk. Tom and Stacy were interviewed after Paula because they were the next ones to leave the home. They left the home at around 8.30 a.m., now, Stacy and Tamla were pretty close. They had become good friends over the past couple of months. So, Stacy and Tom were definitely the closest to Tam at the party. And once again, they all said the same things. Everything was fine. Tam was happy. There was no issues between anyone at the party. She had said that Tam originally stated that she was going to sleep with Stacy that night. But Tom was like, no, she's sleeping with me. And it wasn't an argument by any means. It was more of a joke between Tom and Tamla because... After that, Tam put her phone next to Stacy's and said, well, at least our phones can sleep together. Tom said that he woke up about 7.30 a.m. when he went to use the bathroom, and then he just ended up laying in bed until around 8. That's when he woke up Stacy and the two packed their stuff and were out of the house by 8.30. They both noticed that Tamla's car was still in the driveway, so they were glad that she didn't drive home or anything. And this was important because according to Stacy, Tom, and Bridget, Tamla had mentioned that she wanted to drive home. She wanted to leave. She had apparently mentioned this to all three of them at some point in the night. And Stacy said that she had tried talking her out of it because she had been drinking and 
didn't need to risk being pulled over or anything like that. So when her and Tom saw her car still there, they were happy about it and thinking that she was okay. But little did they know she was actually deceased in the backyard. However, my issue with the whole Tamla wanting to go home thing is nobody mentioned why she was saying she wanted to go home. I don't know if she just didn't say why or what, but maybe she was just missing her kids and wanted to go home. You know, I don't know, but I wish somebody could have said why she was wanting to go home. And this is actually something that is talked about online. People are saying that she wanted to go home and she admitted that clear. So people are thinking may, maybe something had happened at the party that made her want to leave. That's just one of the things kind of floating around. So next up was Jean. She was the next person to be interviewed. She also gave the information to police that everyone else did. Everything was good. Tam was fine. You know, blah, blah, blah. I want to walk through Jean's interview, though. So first off, before the investigators even sit down, they mentioned the fact that Jean tried to give them gift cards. For why? I don't know, but they said, thank you for the offer, but we can't accept those because, quote, it would make things look weird if we did. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's weird that you even give them gift cards. Like, that just doesn't make sense, but whatever. I can take that as a kind gesture. Jean goes on to give details and pretty much a timeline of the night, just like the other ladies who were interviewed. And when she gets to the point in the timeline where she planned on going to bed, she said that Stacy, Tom, and Bridget were all still up with Tam. She had told Tam she could sleep upstairs in her oldest son's room. But that following morning, it appeared that she had never made it to bed. Jean makes a comment that the morning Tamla's body was found, her aunt went outside to, quote, see the weather because she's still adjusting to Georgia weather. And she said that apparently she saw Tam lying in the yard at the moment. She ran back inside, splashed water on her face, and prayed that she was just seeing things. She said that she went back outside to look, and sure enough, Tamla was there lying face down on the ground, not moving. So that's when Jean said that Madeline ran upstairs to get Jose. It was after this that Jean sort of dropped a bombshell, in my opinion. She said that she knows for a fact that both of Tamala's arms were down by her side, not one of them up by her face. Like we know that her body was found with one arm down by her side and the other up by her face. She said she also remembers this because it just felt like an odd way to land if she fell from the balcony. She said her legs were straight and her toes were almost pointed. She said she remembered being shocked by the position of her body, but literally no one has admitted to moving her arm. Jose did say that he touched her back to see if she was breathing, and he tried to move her leg to see if she was stiff or not. But other than that, that's the only time he supposedly touched her. But clearly somebody moved her. Somebody definitely moved her arm. But who and why? So now we need to talk about Madeline's interview. Again, that's Jean's aunt who lives in the built-in basement at the home. Just a refresh your memory. Her interview is one of the more controversial interviews, and we'll get into that. She makes a couple of comments that I either didn't know prior to reading her interview or that just kind of stood out to me. 
made my ears perk up a little bit, if you will. (laughs) First thing being, she actually spent some one-on-one time with Tamala on this night. Madeline and Tam both went outside together. It's not clear if Madeline smoked with Tam, but she mentioned that her, Tam, and Stacy all went outside together. She said Stacy didn't stay out there very long, but that Tamla smoked a cigarette, and then after she was done, her and Tam came back inside. This whole time I've been hearing that Tam was the only one who would go outside on the balcony. This may be irrelevant to the case, but it was the first time I heard of this where anyone else went outside with Tamala. So I kind of made a mental note of that. Shortly after coming inside with Tamala, Madeline says that she ended up going to bed, but she was bothered by all the noise upstairs when she was lying there. She said that she ended up turning on her Bose speaker and putting on the thunderstorm sound. She said that she did this every night, but that she turned it up a little more this night since there was a lot of noise coming from upstairs. And Madeline says from this moment she turned on the speaker, she didn't hear a thing. So from then on, she heard nothing. Then I need to mention that during Madeline's interview, Jean actually interrupted. I don't know why this would even be allowed. Um, It's clear this interview wasn't being conducted at the police station, which bothers me in and of itself. I assume it was done back at Jean's house just based on some of the conversation and the fact that someone can interrupt the interview. But yeah, so Jean interrupts the interview and she starts talking to investigators. And this is when she actually offered the gift cards I mentioned. It was very bizarre. I mean, Jean shouldn't even be near Madeline during this interview, let alone busting in and including herself. Just very strange and, again, wildly inappropriate behavior. And with that, that's really the gist of all the interviews. Since cigarettes were a big topic in this case, we need to talk about them. First, I need to tell you about one thing that I found on the website that I mentioned earlier, justicefortam.org. I have no idea who runs the website, like I said, so I don't know how factual this is. But on that website, there is mention of a second cigarette that was found, as well as a lighter on the balcony. Now, again, we know that Jose found an unlit cigarette and a lighter. But now on this website, it's claiming there was actually a second cigarette and lighter. A second cigarette that was actually a different brand than the one that Tamala had been smoking. Now, again, I can't confirm this. And I haven't seen it mentioned anywhere else. So, but I'm putting it out there because it's evidence that we haven't heard about before. And evidence that could place someone else out on the balcony at the time of Tamala's fall. Then one shocking bit of information I learned was that the unlit cigarette, or cigarettes, mentioned several times in this case, was not collected as evidence. Just wasn't taken by police. Why? That's one thing that insinuates she falls off the balcony and it's not bagged as evidence? Not collected at all. This is one of the biggest issues Tamala's family has with this investigation. As they should. They know, just like we do, that this could have been huge for the case. This is one of the only pieces of physical evidence placing Tamala on that balcony, first of all, 
And second of all, if all evidence from the balcony was collected, it could have cleared up whether or not there was one or two different cigarettes. I mean, I can go on and on about that, but then there are just more and more issues that came to light with this case. So you remember those cameras, the infamous cameras that Jose mentioned in the 911 call, specifically the one on the balcony that would have apparently clearly shown what would have happened to Tamla. So there's an email that came out showing Jean had emailed Officer Christian about the videos she pulled from surveillance cameras. She said, quote, this is the last one I have. I must have deleted the others. Meaning she had already sent some videos to him, but none of which appear to help at all. There's also a layout of the security camera timeline, I guess you can call it. It shows the days of the week and if there are videos from that day, then that day, the date is actually bolded and there's a dot underneath the date. And if you click on the date, you can see various videos from that day. But there are several days grayed out indicating there are no videos. And lo and behold, <laughs> there are no videos for the day of the party or the day after. In fact, there are none for the first seven days of November. And again, the party took place on November 4th. I have many issues with this security system thing. Why on earth is a witness in the case sending surveillance footage to police? Why are they not retrieving that themselves? Jean should not have even had the opportunity to delete videos, let alone actually delete potential evidence. That's just actually mind-blowing to me. Second of all, how could she be so careless? If she truly cares about Tamla and had nothing to do with her death, how could you accidentally delete these videos? That could, one, clear your name and clear any of your friends at the party's names. And two, tell you what had happened. If you're so concerned, could tell you what happened. So did you just not see anything? Did you not see any videos at all? Any information you could give police? And then accidentally delete them later. Like, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not calling Jean a murderer because she could have accidentally deleted some videos. But my point is she shouldn't even have the opportunity to delete videos. You know what I mean? Like, I hope you get what I'm saying. And then I just want to, sh- want to know, like, what videos did she send police to Officer Christian? Since I couldn't see where there were any videos for the first seven days in November what was sent to him in the first place. It's just infuriating, all of it, to say the least. Another issue that came out after the autopsy was released was that something that the public pointed out was that her time of death was listed as 1.30 a.m., even though reports state that she was coming and going at around 1.47 a.m. Now, I know that in the autopsy reports, sometimes... The death, time of death can be rounded to the nearest half hour. And if that was the case here, though, it should have definitely been 2 a.m., not 1.30 a.m. Now, Jean and Jose both said they last saw Tamla at around 1.30. And everyone else mentioned that that's when they were going to bed. But we know that Bridget was up in the kitchen with Tamla around 1.30 to 1.47 when she left. However, and speaking of timestamps... Jean had a notification on her phone. Like she got all the other ones on her phone. And that we haven't yet mentioned. 
there's a notification that the garage door on the main level had opened at 1.39 a.m. It had closed at 1.40 a.m. and then opened again at 1.40, so pretty much immediately. And it was not closed after that. So, who was coming in and out of the garage? If everyone else was going to bed at 1.30 and Bridget and Tamla were in the kitchen, why was the door opened and shut like that? Like, opened and shut and then immediately opened again and then never shut back. And does that sound familiar to you? Because that's the exact situation with the back door leading to the balcony. It was opened, shut, and then opened again, but never closed. I just find that strange as well. Again, this case makes me confused, (laughs) makes me scratch my head a lot, and just very frustrated. And before we move on, one thing that stood out to me, (laughs) I say one thing, there's like a million things that stood out to me, but you know what I mean. The other thing was, the Xanax found in her system through the toxicology report. And it wasn't only that, but investigators refused to test the tequila bottle to see if anybody had slipped the Xanax in there. Tamala's family swore that she would never take prescription pills. She drank and smoked weed, sure, but that is just not something that she would have done. Not recreationally, if that's a word. <laughs> And I'll throw in that there are rumors or or speculations that somebody at the party could have slipped the Xanax in her drink so that she would pass out instead of keeping everybody awake even longer. Because she definitely wanted to keep the party going while everyone else had started getting tired and wanted to go to sleep. Now, that's theory. None of that can be proven, obviously, and especially not when authorities won't even test the tequila bottle. During the investigation and even a few months into the case, It was just not being covered in the local news. That's another issue here. There was nothing being put out in the media about this case at all. That was until Tamala's good friend Michelle started making comments and claims that the investigators just weren't doing a good job and they needed to look at the guests from the party a little closer. She also made a complaint to the sheriff's department saying that Jose used the sheriff's department computer system to get her personal information for which he then distributed to a few of the guests at the party. After this, Jose was placed on administrative leave, pending the investigation of that incident, although five days after this complaint, he was terminated completely. The person who had originally placed him on leave said that they had lost trust in his work, so they didn't actually say that he was guilty of finding this information and distributing it, They were just saying they couldn't trust him based on the claim alone. It was determined that Jose had accessed the Forsyth County computer and accessed files pertaining to the case. These files were public record though, but it was still odd that he was looking for this stuff and using his advantages to access it. Just a few days after Tamla's death, he accessed the reports filed by police on the case and then later he accessed a restraining order that Jean had filed on Michelle. The restraining order was dropped, so that was no big deal, and it was determined that he didn't actually access Michelle's personal information, but he was still being shady in my opinion, and I'm sure that's the opinion that Michelle had as well. Now, I don't want to get into the whole restraining order thing between Michelle and Jean. I just think that Michelle took matters into her own hands when she felt investigators weren't doing their job. And I think she kind of hounded these women 
um, everyone at the party. She questioned them herself. She tried to get in touch with them and they kind of fought her on it. And then she just pushed back and she fought harder. And I think at the end of it, all of the women that attended the party, if not, you know, just the majority ended up filing a civil lawsuit against her. I'm assuming just for damaging their names and and putting their names out there and making them look like suspects. It was after Michelle filed a nine-page statement with police regarding Jose accessing her personal information that she started reaching out to the news outlets, and that is when the case got major recognition. The biggest issue to the public initially, and what screamed red flag, was that a witness in this case took advantage of his connection and accessed case files and got away with it. The case was officially closed on February 20th, 2019. A press conference was given stating that the case was being closed, but again, shady police department, Tamala's family was not even notified that this was going to happen until like an hour before, maybe. I mean, it's just disrespectful, honestly. But after this press conference, the case seemed to fade from the public eye. And it wasn't until June 5th, 2020, right in the heart of the George Floyd death and anti-police brutality protest that on June 5th, Ralph Fernandez, the Horsford family attorney, wrote a letter to Tamla's husband claiming that his team's investigation into the case strongly suggested homicide. It said in part, quote, witness statements are in conflict. A potential subject handled the body as well as evidence prior to law enforcement arriving. He also stated that Tamla's injuries were consistent with those of a physical struggle, but that the absence of photos from the initial autopsy prevented a definite conclusion. There was one x-ray, but the injury noted as the cause of death appears nowhere. Tamla's family also had an out-of-state autopsy done, and that autopsy concluded that there were injuries that occurred post-mortem, aka after her death. If you remember, there being an extreme lack of blood on the ground, and several people found that odd, myself included, mainly because she broke her wrist and had a pretty deep cut on the wrist, yet there was no puddle of blood, even under that wrist. Some speculate that this injury occurred after her death, because when an injury occurs post-mortem, the body does not bleed much, if at all, which would make sense in this case. But it's insinuated throughout the case that this injury occurred because of the fall, not after. I started to let your brain kind of run with that. (laughs) But to recap that for you, those who have this theory that the injury occurred post-mortem also theorize that she died prior to the fall. That she was either placed on the ground, making it look like she had fallen from the balcony, or something along those lines. The other thought that since there was no puddle of blood, that if this injury occurred prior to her death, then this had to have happened somewhere else. Meaning, if she was still alive at the time of the injury, prior to her fall, that there should be way more blood than there was. Now, an Atlanta journalist published the letter that the Horsford family attorney wrote a few days after it was sent to Tamla's husband. And the case received massive internet attention starting with protesters in Cumming, Georgia, who included her name on their signs alongside the names of other black Americans murdered by police in recent years. 
A change.org petition was started calling for the case to be reopened, and it received more than 586,000 signatures, including those of rappers T.I. and 50 Cent, who both shared posts about this case on their social media pages asking for a second investigation. On June 12, 2020, Forsyth County Sheriff Officer Ron Freeman sent a letter requesting that the case be reopened and investigated by the GBI. He stated that the investigation was best undertaken by an independent law enforcement agency. Couldn't agree more. (laughs) And on June 18th, the GBI agreed to reopen the case, but they did not specify when the investigation would begin. Although, I did see a news article from January 15th of this year saying that a couple of women at the party have received calls from the GBI looking to speak to them about Corporal Mike Christian, and they were being asked what he shared with them about the case around the time. In that news article, two of the women from the party, their names were not given, said that Officer Christian chatted with them about the case the day Tamala's body was found. He was telling them everything he knew. One of them said, quote, We were just chatting on the phone and he was snapping me pictures of her dead body laying there. Again, wildly inappropriate. (laughs) The other lady mentioned in the article said, quote, I knew when she died. I knew how she died. The toxicology reports. He was just throwing this information out there like it was nothing. And in a surprising comment, I thought, the article goes on to say that both women believe Christian shared the information to, quote, keep the women interested in him. Which, ew, are you using somebody's death as a way to pick up women? You freak? And it's pretty obvious that accusations like this have come out before and after these two women were spoken to. Because there was a quote from someone in that same article. doesn't clearly indicate if it was still one of these two women or not. But it says, if I was Tamla Horsford's family, or any of these families, I would be so mad to know that crucial evidence like in my family member's case, was being sent to random girlfriends to make him look cool. He used his position as a cop and stood behind the badge that gave him power and used that to prey on women. I do know that Officer Christian was fired from the Sheriff's Department and a statement was released to the public saying, Mr. Christian's personal actions are the reason he is no longer employed by Forsyth County Sheriff's Office. While his personal decisions violated our policies, those actions do not change the professional work other deputies have done on this case. This agency has always been and will continue to be transparent in our actions, even when we falter. And that is where we end the Tamala Horsford case. So guys, I know it's a lot to unpack. It's a lot to think about, honestly, to to wrap your head around. You know, is it racially motivated? Is it just the lack of effort put into it by investigators? Or was somebody actually involved um, in her death? Or was it an accident? I would love to know what you think. And you know my opinion. I, I think there's way more to it. Do I think somebody purposely killed her? I can't say that for sure. I, I don't want to say that for sure. But the reality is, more happened than what is being told here. Way more. There's just too many suspicious characters in this to ignore. And it just needs to be reinvestigated properly, if nothing else. 
even if it's the same outcome, it deserves a second investigation. So good thing is we're seeing some movement on the case. The GBI are talking to people. So I like that. And it's very clear that the lead investigator on this case was shady beyond belief, if nothing more than his own personal gain, which is disgusting in and of itself. And I think it deserves a second investigation based on that alone. But there's way more to it. And I hope that we get to see some movement in this case. And I hope we can get some clarification for this family. Again, who knows what the second outcome could be. I'm hoping for more justice for this family. I'm hoping for closure for this family. And that's really all I can pray for at this point. So, like I said, I know it was a lot, but I hope you guys enjoyed it. I would definitely love to know your opinions on this and if you've heard of this case before and just what your thoughts were. So, head over to the podcast Instagram to give me your thoughts. That is killer.kind.pod. And speaking of the Instagram, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we are doing a giveaway here for when we hit 5,000 listens. We're about 20 listens away um, right now, last I checked. So, so it's pretty possible that we'll meet that when the episode goes live on Monday. So definitely share this episode with friends. Share, I guess, part one, too, with friends. And let's get those listens in so we can hit 5,000. I'm so excited. And when we hit 5,000, I will put a post on the Instagram page, like I've mentioned before. And we will be giving away a Tumblr, a Killer Kind exclusive Tumblr, which I am also going to get a second one made for myself. <laughs> um, so keep an eye out for that. I will try to have a picture of what the Tumblr will look like um, in that post, as well as all the information on how to enter to win. So with all that said, I'll stop rambling. I'll be back here in two weeks for the new episode, guys. Until then, stay safe, and I will see you then. Bye, guys. <laughs>